0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to uh, Luke 13. What I want to look at is this. uh, Truths about the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke 13 Jesus has been talking about the kingdom all through the, the book of Luke, as you know. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a wonderful uh, part of the revelation of the, that we have in the word of God, but often misunderstood. There's a kingdom coming in the future because we pray for it. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a good description of what the kingdom is going to be ultimately. But there's another phase of the kingdom that we are in right now, and it's called the kingdom of God's dear son. In Colossians 1.13, Paul says that we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, or the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his dear son. So we are actually experiencing the kingdom right now. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are in the kingdom of God in his present form. Some have called this the already not yet kingdom because there's more coming in the future, but right now we live in the kingdom under the reign of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to see in this chapter is six things that Paul reveals about the kingdom that I think is really helpful to us. The first is that entering this kingdom requires repentance. The only way that we can get into the kingdom of God today is by repentance. And listen to what it says. Uh, This is Luke 13, verse 1. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Let me just explain something. Remember, Jesus just told them, you can read the weather, but you can't read the times. And now, they want to tell him a, a news item so that he would know that they understood what was going on in the world. And so, they tell him this news report about these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. It seems as though probably this took place at Passover when they offered sacrifices and, and uh, they, were, they were murdered. They were killed by Pilate. Pilate was that kind of a ruler. He was a Roman ruler over Israel and he was that kind of a man. He, he shed a lot of blood. And so they tell him about this event where Pilate, as they're offering their sacrifices, he has them murdered and mixes their blood with the blood of the sacrifices, which of course was sacrilege, but he didn't care about that. But but what they want, what they're obviously trying to convince Jesus of is they understand the times and they understand the the what they understand the principles of God. But listen to what Jesus says, how he responds to this. Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? This is sometimes referred to as a Job's equation because this is the—remember the the comforters of Job who came to him when he was suffering so bad? And they kept telling him, you've done something horrible. That's why you're suffering. But we see behind the scenes when we read Job and we find out that God— was allowing this for a very specific purpose. It wasn't because he was punishing Job, but it was because he allowed Satan to test him, that God was in control of this entire process. But they believed this. They believed that when people suffered, it was because they had done wrong, and what they needed to do was do something good or many good things in order to get back into a place of blessing. But Jesus says... Do you are you saying that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you do you suppose that these eight those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, were they worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? The the Tower of Solomon was right by the pool of Solomon. If you remember that account of the man lying there by the pool of Solomon, waiting it for to be disturb, uh, disturbed, the waters to be stirred up, so he could be healed. Well, the the Tower of Solomon was right there, and what it was, it was a place. It was like a lookout, so that they could protect the city. And there were obviously some people there, 18 men, who were right by this tower when it collapsed and fell and it killed them. And so Jesus brings this up. He says, you suppose that they are worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is he saying? The word perish here is the same word that's used in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The word perish means to be ruined. It means to be ruined for what you were created for. You understand what you were created for, right? You were created for a relationship with God. God created you to have a relationship with him. And so he says, if you don't repent, you are going to perish. Now, the Bible's really clear about the fact that all have sinned—this is uh, Romans 3.23—all have sinned and are continually falling short of the glory of God. The glory of God is what we ought to be. It's what he's revealed to us about what we ought to be. And he says, all have sinned and all are continually coming short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 5, he tells us that the entire human race is in this condition of needing to be saved by God because we are in the process of perishing. We have all sinned, and we are falling short of the glory of God. And so Jesus tells them, I tell you, unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. What is repentance? The Old Testament word for repentance is a little word that Every Hebrew student learns because it's the most used word in the Old Testament. 955 times it appears. And the word is shuv, like S-H-U-V, shuv. And it means to turn. Repentance in the Old Testament meant to change your actions. You're going this way, and you turn, and you go back this way. In the New Testament, the word is to change your mind, to change your way of thinking, you need to change your way of thinking and stop being influenced by fools who act as though God does not exist. So repentance is us turning from our, our perspective of what we see God as back to the truth of who he is. We turn back to him. Now in the Old Testament, the most common way that word is used is in regards to Israel because they are more enamored with the gods of the nations around them than they are with their own God, the God that they cannot see the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so every time they turn to these gods, God appeals to them through the prophets to turn, to turn back to him and live on obedience to him. In the New Testament, we are told that we have to change our way of thinking. We have to think again about who we are and who God is and who Christ is. There has to be a repentance, a change of mind, a change of attitude towards God. And so the only way we can enter into the kingdom of God is through repentance and faith. Repentance is what precedes faith and then follows faith. In fact, most of us are aware of the fact—this is John Calvin actually said this— the Christian life is a life of repentance. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that that we're constantly needing to repent because our thinking starts wandering in the wrong direction? And so Jesus tells him, the only way that you can get into the kingdom of God, and he remember he had come preaching the kingdom of God, that's the place of salvation, that's the place that we live under his rule, and he says the only way we can get into the kingdom is to repent, to turn back to him in faith. And then he goes on and he says in verses 6 through 9 that God is patient in preparing us for the life in the kingdom. Listen to this. Verse, uh, verse six, and he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which he had been had been planted in his vineyard. He actually planted this tree. This was common to plant a fig tree in a vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it, and it did, and he did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, "Behold, for three years, interesting that this is the amount of time that Jesus of Jesus is the length of time of Jesus' public ministry." He says, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. It's worthless. You ever had a fruit tree like that? That you just had to get rid of it because it would bear no fruit. Now he's obviously, this is an allusion to Israel. It's used several times. Jesus comes as the Messiah of Israel. He came unto his own things and his own people did not receive him. The great majority of, of Israel did not receive him as Messiah, and the problem was they bore no fruit. And God uses this analogy over and over again. In the book of Isaiah, for example, he calls Israel a vineyard, a vine that he plants in a place. He gives them a land, he cultivates it, and he plants them, but they don't bear fruit, and therefore judgment is coming upon them. And so, here he's telling this parable about this. Uh, this vine grower, this man who owned a, a vineyard, and he planted a tree, a fig tree, which would bear no fruit. And he says, I keep coming back year after year. For three years now, I've come back, and there's no fruit on it. So cut it down. What is it? What, what is even? Why do we even use up the ground with this tree? And he answered and said to him, this is the gardener, he says to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, then fine. But if not, then cut it down. Stop and think about this in your Christian life. God saved you so that you would bear fruit. He saved me so that I'd bear fruit. We know what the fruit is. We have to look at Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. I can never get all seven of those out. But the fruit of the Spirit is character. It's the character of Jesus Christ. And so God wants us to bear fruit. And he wanted Israel to bear fruit. But because they didn't bear fruit, what he's telling them is judgment is about to fall. And it did fall. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried and raised again. And he's going to demonstrate even to Israel that he is the Messiah. But they refuse him. Forty years later, Israel is completely destroyed by the Romans. And not only that, but the Jews are driven completely out of the city and cannot return. Judgment has fallen upon them. And so this parable is about that very fact. This tree was planted. God planted Israel, but they bore no fruit. Now, in the next section... Uh, it tells us that kingdom living is offensive to the religious. Listen to this account. Listen to this story, beginning in verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double. She was completely bent over. She couldn't straighten up for 18 years. When Jesus saw her, get that, when Jesus saw her, He called her over, and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. You get that? She didn't beg him. She didn't even ask him. He saw her. He saw her need, and he calls her to him, and he says, You are freed from your sickness, and he laid his hands on her. This is the only time in the New Testament when Jesus lays his hand on someone who has been demonized. He lays his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And you say, praise the Lord. That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it, to see that? But get this. But the synagogue official, kind of like the pastor of a church, the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on a Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response. He doesn't say it to Jesus. He says it to the crowd. And this is what he says to them. There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath. And you want to say, when was the last time someone was healed here on a weekday? Would you tell me? It just so happened that the Messiah of Israel was there and he healed this woman on a Sabbath. But the Lord answered this synagogue official and said, You hypocrites. You know what a hypocrite is, right? A hypocrite is somebody who's phony. They put on a face that's not really who they are. And Jesus says to them, you hypocrites, in other words, you're acting so spiritual, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead them away to water him? Do you know they were allowed to do that under the law? If you had an ox, you could unloose him and lead him to water on the Sabbath day and it wasn't considered work. It wasn't considered violating the Sabbath. He says, But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath? Should she come back tomorrow on the first day of the week? Would anybody be there to heal her? No. You see what's going on here? This, this synagogue official was so religious that he didn't want Jesus violating the Sabbath law by healing this woman. And Jesus said, well, of course it's right to heal this woman, just like it's right for you to take your ox to water. As he said this, all of his opponents were being humiliated. So it wasn't just the synagogue official, it was others who were agreeing with him. This is religious people. These are people who never break the rules, and they think that they deserve a relationship with God because they keep their rules. They don't keep God's rules, but they keep their rules. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. They saw what was important here. That is, that God had healed this woman who had been suffering for 18 years. And then the next section, the nature of the kingdom is to be growing. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? What kind of simile could I use to to give you an idea of what the kingdom is like? He gives two. He says, first of all, it is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden. Now I want you to notice this. He didn't plant the mustard seed. He threw it in the garden. It was a bunch of stuff, just like some compost, that he threw into the garden. And he says, And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. This is the kingdom of God. I get a kick out of this. Every single day, I get a bunch of emails from different organizations that want to sell you a program that will make the church grow, that will make the kingdom of God grow. And for 1200 bucks, you can buy a program like that, and it will just transform the church. But Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, that God created in such a way that it grows. It's spontaneous. This man didn't plant the mustard seed. He simply threw a bunch of stuff into the the garden area like like you would with compost, and this mustard seed came up. Mustard tree, it became like a tree. It was so big as a bush, but it was so big that birds nested in it. There was incredible growth. And then in verse says, and again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? What's another comparison? He gives another one. It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. He says, this is how the church grows. It just spreads out. It penetrates, and it goes in all directions. You know, I'm glad that there are groups that have a plan, and they're following their plan to spread the gospel around the world, there's been this big effort over the last few decades to reach every unreached people group. And they have a plan. They have maps. They can show you where they've gone. They try to reach people groups. And this is what they consider reaching a people group. If they, if they go into a group that have never heard the gospel before, and they have one church— that's, that's formed. There's a small group of people who get saved, and a church is formed. They consider that a reached people group. And here's what's happened over the last 30 or 40 years. We have unreached people groups that have been reached in that way, and yet no one has been trained to preach and teach the Bible. And they are filled with error and syncretism. It's like this in many parts of the world. But what Jesus is talking about is the growth that God produces, that God produces. I think it's really fascinating to compare this this, um, mustard seed that fell on the soil and the fig tree that was planted. The fig tree that was planted so that it would bear fruit bore no fruit. The mustard seed grew like crazy and it wasn't, it wasn't even planned. He didn't even plan it. He didn't. It wasn't like he wanted this mustard seed to grow. It just grew up. And then he says it's like leaven. I don't know anything about leaven permeating dough because I, I'm not a baker. But some of you are, and you know how this is. You just put a tiny bit of leaven in dough, and it permeates the entire lump of dough. The kingdom of God is here, and it's permeating people groups all over the world because God is doing it. How did you get saved? How did you come to be in the kingdom of God? Isn't it amazing all the different stories that we hear about how people come to faith in Christ, how they come into the kingdom of God? It's almost as though God does it, isn't it? It's almost as though that God is in charge of this process, and that he actually brings people into the kingdom of God supernaturally. Like we saw in, uh, over and over again in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, that God is the one who causes the light of the glory of God to shine in the face of Christ. And you see who Christ is. I've heard some of the strangest testimonies about how people come to faith in Christ. Most unlikely stories you could ever hear. And there are probably many of them here today. It's because God is causing the kingdom of God to grow. And it continues to grow. And it's like yeast that permeates this world. There are seven and a half billion people in the world today, it's estimated. There's over, there's about two and a half billion people who claim to be Christians. Who, call, who identify themselves as followers of Christ. About one-third of the world's population. How did that ever happen? How did that happen? Remember what it started with? Remember the day of Pentecost? 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day. 3,000 people, that's a lot, isn't it? But this world is populated by a whole lot of people, seven and a half billion people, and there's two and a half billion people who call themselves followers of Christ. You may say, well, they're not all real Christians. Well, they they claim, they identify themselves as followers of Christ. So whatever the number is, we know that there are a lot of people who have come to faith in Christ over these last 2,000 years. And as you read the New Testament, you see what happens. Because the Jews did not receive Christ, the, and instead they persecuted those who did and drove them out, they went throughout the whole land taking the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't their plan. It wasn't some master plan that some man came up with that said, let's get people out and away and over here and over there and over there. No, they get driven out. And as they went, they preached the gospel. I love the account in, in Acts when it says that finally, because they had only taken the gospel to Jews, and finally, some men, and it doesn't even name them, just some men who had been. Had become believers, they went to Antioch, which was north. They went up to Antioch, where it was all Gentiles, and they began to share the gospel with Gentiles for the first time. And from, from Antioch, as you know, you read through the book of Acts, this is, this is where the gospel is launched, and it goes westward, and it finally arrived here, because the gospel keeps going out. I had a young man, I was talking to the other day, and he wants to go and do some mission work. He wants to find a group that he can go to some other country and tell people about Christ. What in the world would precipitate that? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what. And this is how Jesus says it grows. It grows because of its very nature. It's in the DNA of the kingdom of God that it grows. And then notice in this next section, verse 22 through 30, I got to make sure I'm going in the right place. Uh, this is what it says. And he, and he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and pro- proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And you know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested, tried, beaten, spit upon, killed, crucified and buried, and then he's going to raise from the dead. And he's traveling towards Jerusalem, and someone said to him, "Lord, are there just a few who are being saved?" Are there just a few that are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door. Now you've got to understand he's talking. He's talking to Jews who have rejected God's messenger. Now, Jesus had said that John the Baptist was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets because he was the one who came to Israel with the message to prepare themselves for the coming of Messiah. And yet he was rejected by the great majority. And then Jesus was rejected by the great majority. And he says, those of you who don't respond to this invitation, you're going to find out that the door is going to be closed, and you're going to be saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. I remember Jesus. I remember when he was passing throughout the land. Don't you remember me? I saw you. I was in one of those crowds. Then you begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In other words, they rejected him. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourself being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. That is, there's going to be Gentiles that were outcasts that they thought had no opportunity, no chance whatsoever, to have a relationship with God and he said and some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last in other words he's calling them now we know that he's talking about when he says narrow door he's talking about himself we see this in John 10 and Matthew 7 where he's the narrow door he is the only entrance into the kingdom of God It's through Jesus Christ there's no other entrance I know you sometimes hear these stories about people who say all religions are the same. They're just different ways to God. You take your path, and they take their path. That's not true. There's only one entrance into the kingdom of God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in him. And then there's one last section. The bringing in of this kingdom is the work of the king. Listen to this. Just as at that time some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. It's not safe here for you, they said. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. (laughs) Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. He's headed towards Jerusalem. And the reason that he is the door is because he's going to go to Jerusalem and die for you. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. This is an amazing statement from the Messiah of Israel. He says, this is where all the prophets get killed, is in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. God had sent them messenger after messenger after messenger. And they abused them and killed them and rejected them. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you that you will not see me again until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That expression is used in Luke, uh, several places really, but Luke 19, Isaiah 40, of the second coming of Christ. When he comes back, they're going to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They said the same thing when he entered into Jerusalem and he was crucified. The the point of this whole thing is that the, the Jews had forgotten that it was not the Mosaic covenant that was going to bring them into the kingdom. The Mosaic covenant was temporary and provisional. The promises that God made to Abraham would not be fulfilled through the Mosaic covenant. But through the new covenant. That's what we preach, the gospel. It's the new covenant. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ that a person enters into the kingdom. You see, this is the Jews' attitude. We are Abraham's seed, we are God's favorites. It's kind of like Americans. Americans believe because America is considered to be a Christian nation, if you're an American, you're a Christian. The Bible says you become a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by believing and putting your trust in him who died for you, who was buried and rose again and is coming back. He has provided a way for sinners to be received by God and to enter into the kingdom of God and to live in relationship with God throughout all eternity. Jesus' word to you today is that you would come to him in faith and embrace him by faith and enter the kingdom of God. And I think this is, this is what I think we should understand is we need to live like all of us who are in the kingdom of God. We need to live like we are members of the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of God. You have a message to tell. You may be the only one who is able to tell a person who is in your life how they might enter into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ, through repentance and faith. And this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to live like citizens of the kingdom. And we have entered into the kingdom through faith in Christ. And There's no other way. There's no other way that we can get in. It's not through church membership. It's not through good works. It's not through being an American. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ and what he is telling these Jews they didn't like it but it was exactly what they needed to hear that God can raise up the children of Abraham from these stones he can do the same thing with Americans it's not being an American that makes you a Christian it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and so he's calling us I want to close there because I don't want you to freeze to death. And you're all looking cold to me. So let me pray. Our Father, thank you so much for Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, our King. We thank you that he has come and he has become a door into the kingdom of God. And we have entered in by faith into this kingdom. We live under his rule. We live in relationship with you. How we thank you, Father, for the great privileges we have experienced being the people of God. We know we don't deserve it, and yet we have received it by faith. We thank you that we can come together and experience the realized presence of God when we meet. Because Jesus said, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. And so when we gather, we recognize that we are in the presence of God. And I pray that we would act like it. I pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts, that you would cause us, our eyes to be open to the reality of what it means to be members of the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone who's here today and has never rested their faith in Christ, that you would open their eyes to this glorious gospel and this glorious person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would come to rest their faith in him. We thank you so much for all these great privileges you've given us. We love being members of the kingdom of God. We love living in relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.